In this episode, we review the Hulu special Hunting John Bonet's Killer, The Untold Story. We are about to pick this apart over the next 30 minutes from the things that gave us goosebumps to the parts that we wanted thrown out. By the end, we had a lot to say and want to give you the rundown of this documentary so you can decide for yourself. So let's jump in. I'm Alyssa. I'm Erin. And, and we, we are Crime TV. TV. Okay, so I just watched this at 11. I was running really behind this week. I see that. Oops. <laughs> My life's a mess. Mm -hmm. This one was a little bit hard for me because I didn't have background of the case and I don't feel like they really went into it fully. They expected the, the viewer to know something about it beforehand. So that for me was a little bit difficult. But I think this was a very well done documentary. I learned a lot about the cases. I was super interested in these new suspects. The only thing that really confused me, maybe you will have more insight onto this. So they're talking to this inmate, Bernice, and she is the one giving them these tips for the case. And what really struck me was that they were treating those as three different theories, labeling them as theory one, theory two, and theory three. But in the documentary and the way things were explained, they all seemed... It's one theory. Yeah, they were intertwined. And I was like, why are they saying this is three different theories? Mm -hmm. Because they all go together. There's, yeah. I guess you could technically separate them, but the way they were being they, explored yeah. was as one single theory. So I didn't really like that. I felt, because of their labeling, I felt like I was missing something. Yeah, because they said theory one was Todd Foose. And then theory two was Michael Helgoth. And then theory three was this cult leader in Maryland. I was taking my notes. I was like, okay, another person enters, then another person. But then when Bernice is talking about it, it's all these people are working together rather than it be three separate incidences. Which it was three suspects. Mm -hmm. Four if you count Todd. Right, the other Todd. And the other thing was at the end of this, we do learn that none of these suspects can reliably say that they had involvement. Even one of, two of them weren't a DNA match, and one of them was not even anywhere near the crime scene, wasn't even in the same state. And the other one that could have been plausible was dead and has already, also worth noting, I think, has already been explored by the Boulder, Colorado Police Department. And came up as not a suspect. So again, while the documentary was done really well and I learned something, I did struggle with what the point of it was. Mm -hmm. I know it was to release and give viewers insight into some more suspects that had come up and how they were ruled out, but I didn't think it was fair that it was presented as a case where there's new details and... Right. <laughs> which, so like how much of that did they play up for the drama, for the suspense of a case that everyone wants the resolution to? I think one of the things that our listeners will soon find out about me is I can't do unsolved cold cases. Well, I was surprised you wanted to do this one because I, I know it's a cold. I know. John Benet Ramsey is a thing that a lot of people in the true crime community are invested in. It's only right that we do an episode about it. I went on a limb and 
I'm left in shambles, just in pieces. I need resolution. Yeah. As somebody that's been in the true crime loving field for about 15 years, I need is closure. I need resolution. And so this documentary is hard for me. Not to mention that I was only a couple months old whenever this case happened. So it's not one of the cases that like I've ever been invested in, but now I'm getting invested in it and I hate it. <laughs> I want closure. And I agree with you that this documentary, they went with the assumption that we just knew about the case as it was, where whenever I got into true crime, this case was already 10 years old and it had grown cold. I didn't know a whole lot of the backstory. I had to do research outside of this documentary to know the synopsis about this case. That's where this documentary fell short for me. I would agree. And two, because it was one of the first sentences, they went in really hard with this ransom note, like the infamous ransom note. And I was like, I don't know what this says and you're not giving me a chance to read it. Right. They're just like flashing these three pages in front of you, the, the ransom note. <laughs> I had no idea what this is. I was like, is. what's happening? Just no lube, went straight in. <laughs> just with this ransom note. And the ransom note too, apparently is like super significant. And I was like, I don't have this memorized. Can right. you read it to me? I would have liked them to have taken a minute and a half to read this ransom note, but they just showed the little highlights and clips because they went into it thinking that people who are going to watch this documentary already know about John Bonet Ramsey, which for us, especially you didn't go in with any knowledge. For me, I'm like entry level John Bonet Ramsey 101, but not the little nitty gritty details about the case. There wasn't much of a timeline either. And I get why, because this wasn't directly about the case. Like, obviously it's been 20 years, but there was no timeline of like when they were talking to these suspects, if this was going on all at the same time and they just presented each of the leads they were following mm -hmm. or not. The other thing that I think fell a little bit short, this documentary, they had a beautiful opportunity to talk to the father 20 years after He's obviously not in the heat of the moment with his emotions, can look at this objectively, wants an answer, has effectively moved on with his life, has other kids like grown grandkids, is doing okay. They had such a good opportunity to talk to the father and they wasted it just the whole time going, do you think this is credible? Do you think this is believable? Do you think this is plausible? Yeah, they were just chasing down rabbit holes Whereas I would maybe want a little bit more of an investigation or an interview with her dad. Just what happened that night? Can you speak more on what you think happened? What theories do you think are plausible? They could have even used his account of everything to drive the story of the documentary. And they didn't. They right. wasted it just giving us a five second clip of the interviewer being like, so this is what happened. Do you think this is a good lead? And he says, this is a strong lead. Yeah. Highly suspicious. This needs to be followed. It was a waste of that interview. And I say that very critically. It sounds like I don't like this documentary. I actually thought this documentary was pretty good overall. For being a documentary that explores leads 20 years after a case has been picked up, I think it was done okay. I did have a few things that I was not super pleased about, but I'm a very critical person. You don't say. A bit of a pessimist. <laughs> so I tend to see the worst side of things. So all of this being said, 
Tell the people what cup of tea you're drinking today. Today I have Sonic sweet tea. It's in this gorgeous styrofoam cup. I'm so sorry, environment. It's very sweet, really sugary. Mm-hmm. We're in the South. They make the best sweet tea. It's not up for argument. Don't at me. So yeah, I just have a sweet tea today. It was a sweet tea day. So I'm following suit with Aaron, and I am also drinking Sonic tea, but mine's unsweet. Unsweet? I, Yeah, I know. But I did have them put the little bit of vanilla syrup in it. They can do that? Mm-hmm. Whoa. Yeah. Mind blown. I was going to be like a skinny bitch and get like a sugar-free peach or some shit like that. But I was like, nah. <laughs> I, I'm just still on the fact that like Sonic will put syrups in like a tea for you. Yeah. It's the ultimate drink stop. Anyway, I think for this documentary, I'm going to give it three cups of tea. I think that there were some things that could be done better. I wish I had a bit of a synopsis. I think not having a timeline and not clearly labeling what was going on detracted from their point. And I think they could have made better use of their interviewers. The first time ever, I'm giving it a lower rating than you. <gasps> I know. I'm going to go with two cups of tea two on this one. Two cups of tea? I know. Really? I honestly had a hard time watching this one. Okay. I'm usually very in tune to whatever I'm watching when it's true crime. Yeah. But I had a hard time following this one because I just felt like they were chasing rabbit holes based off of what this woman who is incarcerated says. And obviously, none of it came back with any news, any... Any advancements in the case? That's true. This this whole documentary led up to a big bunch of nothing. Yeah. It's all a big question mark. And really, I spent an hour and a half with a question mark over my head the entire time. That's fair. That's fair. Okay. So, based on this documentary, what are we thinking? You know what? The number of times that these director, this FBI guy, this producer was like, let's get their trash. <laughs> Why are we digging through everyone's trash? I know they wanted DNA, but good Lord. Why bother picking up all their trash, digging through trash to then just interview the person and straight up ask for their DNA? And they're like, yeah, sure. And all of them were like, uh, yeah, of course. Like, <laughs> You went, You wasted two hours digging through someone's disgusting trash just to then ask them for a DNA sample? I'm glad you went straight to the former FBI agent because literally my first note is talking about how whenever they introduced Robert Clark, the former FBI agent, it was like a buddy cop film. He's yeah, we're gonna find out who got Jambonet Ramsey. And he's got like the tough guy bald head with the mustache, little tucked in sunglasses. Sunglasses, yeah. Got a little tucked in shirt. I'm like, oh, this is what I imagine whenever, like, <laughs> whenever you talk or think about like CSI Miami or something like that, CSI Las Vegas, that's it. <laughs> One on the same vein, did you catch how absurd it really took me out of the documentary? Because it was just so absurd where they're like, all right, it's time to get the trash. We're going in. I'm driving around. Luckily, it's trash day. And they're like, are you ready for to grab the trash? And the guy's, I got the bag. And then the FBI guy's like, good work. It's like, people, you're just like 
pulling a trash bag out of a dumpster. Why is this so dramatic? They had the music in the background even, and I was just like, what am I watching right now? I can't. Like, the interaction between Robert Clark and his partner on this case is what I imagine, like, raccoons and possums are like, yeah, it's trash day. Let's go. Roll out. (laughs) Exactly what I think it would be like. I get that they're trying to find DNA, but there's just so many other ways they could have done this. And that was just so overly dramatic it's like the middle of the night they're like driving up to this trash can and they're like suvs like like we've secured the bag calm down it's just trash that person doesn't even want it there's no secret here which they're doing like a full-on stakeout to see when these people dump their trash and i love like in the stakeout clips they're basically like sitting in front of these people's mailboxes what is the use of these resources who is paying for this is it my tax dollars because i'm a little i'm a little I upset hope not. <laughs> i hope it's a e who put on this documentary i would hope so because if i paid for that i'm, I'm actually a little upset i've got some words <laughs> to piggyback on the trash DNA stuff. They were talking about how Michael Helgoth's family wouldn't supply them a DNA sample. Yeah. Why don't they just go trash panda one of their houses and get a piece of hair or fingernail clippings or or whatever kind of DNA that they could find out of the trash that they're getting from Todd Foose or anybody else? How's it that hard? I wonder if it's maybe because it's already going to be secondary DNA, like not, they know it's not going to be an exact match. And I wonder if the uncertainty of a trash DNA sample on top of just being a related individual to the actual suspect would be too far off to count for anything. Like, I wonder if like in courts, there's a certain level of what you can use. Compatibility of DNA or something. Which is another thing. I, I had a question about this, but... Can you just take someone's trash to get their DNA? I've seen it done numerous times and they've okay, been Okay, why? To, like if someone's like <laughs> smoking a cigarette outside of a restaurant and they put it in Have like, you seen that in movies or is like in no, cri- like true crime stuff? Like that doesn't seem allowed. I don't know why, but it just does not seem like that would be due process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have an accounting job, not a law enforcement job, but I know that a lot of the times I've seen where people have refused to give their DNA, but I go into the interrogation room with you. I'm like, oh, here's your cup of water. And Mm. then you drink out of it and then you leave your cup there or you throw it in the trash. I'm going to get it and test it for DNA. Moral of the story. If you're getting interrogated and you did it. Recycle everything. (laughs) Don't accept the water. (laughs) Don't drink it. If you do drink it, drink it all break the cup i don't know take the cup with you take it with you and burn it if you commit a crime but hopefully you don't commit a crime i mean don't commit crimes that's yeah but if you do don't accept water from the officer even if it's got cucumber in it (laughs) looks really refreshing don't do it so i have a hard time believing this woman bernice in the colorado jail who is in jail let's not you know skim past this she's in jail for attempted murder murder of Todd Foose, which is her baby daddy. How old would their daughter be? Like, is her daughter like, what the F are my parents doing? I think she was probably born around 93. Mm-hmm. She was in 
um, the same beauty pageants as Jean Bonnet, but she, she was, was younger. younger. Yeah. And so Jean Bonnet was born in 1990, and she was six at the time that she was murdered. And Cinnamon, which is a stripper name, <laughs> Cinnamon was in a younger age group. So I'm going to assume she's probably about your age. You were born in 94? Yeah. So... 93, 94. Because that's the other thing. When was this documentary filmed? Do we have the year on that? Because I was wondering, when they were going through his trash, they said that there was some of Cinnamon's schoolwork. Yeah. And I was like, isn't that girl, like, in her 20s? Is she, is it college work? It would have to be because this documentary was in 2019. So, if anything, it was filmed in 2018, she would have been out of school. So it must have been college school. It was just weird of them to refer to it as like her schoolwork and her dad's trash. Like she's not because she would have been like twenty four, twenty five. Yeah, she's not a teenager. So Bernice was charged with attempted murder against Todd Foose, who she is claiming murdered John Bonet. Like already, your credibility is out the window for me. And oh, this is another thing. When I watched this documentary, I was like. Why are we, what's happening here? When the FBI director calls Bernice back and his his DNA test was inconclusive, so why are you lying? Seems to me like you're trying to frame him. Like, why bring that up? She didn't know that his DNA was going to be inconclusive. Like, she thought she had pertinent information. There's no need to call her back, rub it in her face, and start making her look like an idiot. Why did he need to call her back and be like, did you just do this for revenge? You're trying to frame him. What are you going to do? She's already in jail. Leave right. her alone. Like, maybe she was trying to help you because most of the information she gave, they were able to corroborate. Yeah. And there was some it's truth very, to it. It's very plausible he did have involvement. His DNA turned out to be not. But from the circumstantial evidence, he could have had involvement and she was just trying to help. Why does he need to call back and make her out to be some terrible person? I say that about someone that's in jail, but, like, for attempted murder, but, like, she's doing... other than that... She's doing her time. Doesn't mean she's a terrible human, like, in the rest of her life. So, really, Bernice's story, from beginning to end, got too many coincidences for her not to bring it up. Yeah. I guess I respect the woman for saying, these are throwing red flags for me. Maybe you would want to look into it because there was a lot of things in this case that any other person would be like, attempted murder charge or not, would be highly suspicious of. Even if it was in Todd Foose that was involved, it, there could have been another person. Yeah. And who else did they expect to come forward with information like that except someone who was close to Todd or Scott or the people involved like obviously to have information like that it's gonna be someone with a personal relationship to those people what did he expect the case against michael helgoth is compelling though yes i hope so somebody in the helgoth family comes forward and is just wanting to clear the air i was intrigued why they wouldn't want to try and clear him unless they knew he did it But even then, he's already dead, so why not? None of them are going to get in trouble unless they knew. The thing that I could see is that this is such a well-known, highly publicized, kind of sensitive case for a lot of people, that if something were to come back where it was Michael Helgoth that did it, they don't have Helgoth to put that anger towards, so they're going to probably go to the next best person, which is going to be his family, and they don't want that from themselves. Yeah, okay, I can see that. Well, and two, I guess if they come forward, if the DNA checks out, 
and then they would probably have to answer a lot of questions at that point. And if they either knew about it and didn't say anything, they could be subject to be charged with accomplice type stuff or obstruction of justice, maybe at the very least, for knowing about his involvement for 20 years and not speaking up. So I guess that's true, but in my opinion, it just makes them look even more suspicious to be like, no, we're not going to help you. We're not going to provide any DNA. We're not going to try and get closure for this case. That, to me, looks suspicious. If you know nothing about him or his involvement, and you're just a family member that can provide DNA, why wouldn't you? It, it was just so weird because the DA's office made that press conference in February of 97 and said that, like, we're on to you. The list is going to narrow down where it's just you. And Helgoth was found deceased due to suicide the following day, the day after this conference and he had a stun gun near his body which i don't understand why he would have a stun gun near his body he shot himself is how he took his own life so what the hell does a stun gun have to do like where it's that close to his body what has the connection of the stun gun um marks on john benet's back but in the moment of taking your own life why would you need a stun gun i because we lacked some details about his death. Mm -hmm. I was just assuming like wherever he chose to commit suicide was just surrounded by his belongings and that was just something that happened to be there. Now, I can't speak to why you would leave your stun gun just lying around on the floor, but I took it as just circumstantial. That's just, just where how it was. Yeah, He probably wasn't the most organized person. So, to switch it to a more humorous... Yes. So, in this interview with Robert Clark, Todd Foos and Robert Clark are talking, and Robert Clark says, it sounded like you were going to come into money around Christmas of 96. You were talking about buying a new pickup truck and all this. And Todd Foos laughs in his face and says, I have never had money. Do I look like I have money? I don't even know people that have money. <laughs> it's like, my dude, I feel bad. Yeah. This is where it gets fuzzy, though, because he's like, yeah, no, definitely not. But Bernice was, like, so sure that all of that happened, and they were able to... I wonder if they were able to, like, call the dealership and confirm that portion. Yeah. That maybe would have made a difference. But, yeah, I was like, fair enough, dude. <laughs> and he thought it was just so funny. He's like, no, man, not well, me. <laughs> that's the other thing. He was so casual during that interview. He was like, yeah, swab me, like laughing at this FBI director. I feel like even 20 years after, if he had some involvement and knew something. He'd be sweating bullets. I've seen some documentaries with psychopaths, but they're not mm. that casual. And the other thing too, Robert Clark was saying in a little sidebar interview that Todd Foose's eyes kept shifting and he kept looking away and all of that whenever talking about John Bonet. But I'm also the type of person that if I got called to the principal's office, I would be sweating bullets. I would be nervous. I don't make eye contact because generally I was a good kid in high school. After high school, different story. But I think that Robert Clark has such this intimidating, hard-hitting personality about himself that if you're going to somebody that was probably of a lower education, self-confidence, like Todd Foos gives the vibe of, that I probably would not want to make contact with this 
hard-hitting FBI agent. I know, too, when I don't know the science on this, if anyone has a background that's listening that knows something about human behavior in situations like this, please let us know. Send us an email, drop us a DM, whatever, because I'm curious about this. But when I'm trying to think about something especially... If I am looking for my words or trying to remember an event that someone asks me about, I don't stare dead into their eyes the entire time I'm trying to think. Like, I look away, I look up at the ceiling when I'm trying to think about something. I don't know interrogation tactics. I don't know human body language. I'm not an expert, obviously, but I think I would be looking away too if someone asked me where I was on a certain day and I was trying to remember my day. Yeah. I think it would be fucking weird if someone stares into my eyes for like 10 seconds while they try and think. Yep. Like... Especially when you're trying to remember something that happened over 20 years ago. Yeah. So I think that his shifting eyes, I guess you could call them, that was probably just natural and maybe just bad camera cuts and they wanted to make something more dramatic. I think so. I got that same vibe, too. What they did to manager in Hotel Cecil. Yeah. Same concept. Yep, I would agree. This documentary, I lost interest whenever they got into the BDX stuff. Yeah. This cheesy shit that I just gotta put out there. How fucking cheesy is it that this cult guy's limo driver is in the interview? And Aaron, what did they take him on whenever they were conducting his interview? They drove him around in the limousine. Oh, yeah. You're taking the former limo driver around the block a couple of times in a limo for his interview. And the purpose is what? Again, I hope my tax dollars were not paying for this. <laughs> Just, yeah, I, I was like, why, is, why are they in a limo? What is, where are we? This is my super sweet 16. <laughs> but I wish I could dismiss all that BDX shit because it's so far out there. Yeah. But people are absolutely nuts. And I feel like you can't really dismiss it because they are crazy, but they could possibly be crazy enough to have something to do with JonBenet's killing. I think there's a lot of circumstantial stuff around that guy and what he was preaching to others at the time that does make him an interesting suspect. And I don't think even at the end of this documentary, I don't think I can dismiss him as being a part of it completely. Especially since he basically, like, they didn't get any of his DNA and he just said he wasn't involved. They weren't able to go any further with him as a suspect, but that is just so out there. Mm-hmm. There was so much going on there. Like, why did we need to know about his exercise business that was brought up? His like, shake weight business. <laughs> yeah, like, why was that a part of this documentary yeah. even? Did that have any relevance? No. I, I just... Everything he was about, like, obviously the charges brought against him, the cult leadership, the hiring of people to do kidnappings and attempted kidnappings is relevant. And that's where that should have been emphasized in the documentary. His weight, ball, hand, whatever that was. Yeah. And the aliens and cats, I thought was not necessary. Yep. This is some of the information that I found in the aftermath of me watching this documentary. Okay. So we know that the Ramses had a very large Christmas party on Christmas Day evening. Okay. How easy do you think it would have been for someone to not leave that Christmas party and hide 
in this basement that they had or any other part of the house, a linen closet even. Somebody could have just not left that evening and waited till everybody was going to bed and snatched John Bonet up. Yeah, especially since there was a part of the basement that even officers didn't bother to go into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say it'd be very easy for someone to hide in the house. And so in watching this documentary, one of the things that kind of threw a major question mark for me is that the ransom notes were left upstairs on the stairwell when John Bonet was found in the basement. They obviously went into the home with this ransom note already written is how the documentary presented it. And then they just placed it on the stairwell, but John Bonet was dead before she even left the house. Yeah. So the law enforcement officers were able to connect the three page ransom note to other stationery found in the Ramsey home. So their legal pad or printer paper, whatever that they had, that ransom note was written in the house with whatever they had in the house. Wish they would have said that in the documentary. Yeah, for sure. A few weeks before this murder, he receives $118,000 in a Christmas bonus. And that's the exact amount that the ransom note requested. So it's not like an even 125,000, 150, 100, 200,000. It's this obscure number of 118,000. Yeah, that is a very odd number to bring up. So who would have known that's the exact amount that John Ramsey received? Yeah. And then one of the other things that I found is the last thing that I really felt should have been talked about in the documentary is the suitcase that was used as a step up to escape the basement through the window. Mm, Yeah. It didn't belong to anybody in the Ramsey family. What? They didn't say that. I thought it was just a suitcase that was like in there and I was wondering why it was so strange that her clothes fibers would have been on a suitcase they owned. Right. Oh, now that makes sense. So the suitcase didn't belong to anybody in the Ramsey family, so the family claims. And there was a shoe impression that was on top of the suitcase. Somebody pushed themselves up. Oh, yeah, that would have been pertinent information for them to probably include in this documentary when mentioning that suitcase. Overall, how are we feeling about this documentary, Alyssa? Boo! (laughs) I think this is the first one that you have not liked more than I have. Yeah. I will say I may have had more complaints had I done my research this week like I was supposed to. Oops. I may have had more to say about it. Also, I'm less familiar with this case than you, and this didn't have very much outside information to go on. So from a more objective, this is the documentary standpoint. I still stand by my three cups of tea. Had I known more about the case and or extra details, I can see where your rating would come from, though. Mm -hmm. So we would love to hear what you guys think. You can send us an email at crimetv at gmail.com. That's T-E-A-V. Find us on Instagram at crimetv, T-E-A-V. We also have a TikTok, crimetv, posting videos and bloopers. So get in touch with us, reach out wherever you can, and let us know what you thought about this case or if you have interesting information you want to share with us. Join us next week. Our episodes drop every Monday at 4 a.m. Central Time. We are going to be covering Overkill, the unsolved murder of John Bonet. This gives us a little bit of extra details about this case, goes a little bit more in-depth into the actual investigation, and you can find it on Tubi, T-U-B-I. 
We're going to take a little bit more of a forensic lens look at the JonBenet Ramsey case. We are so obsessed with this case already, so we wanted to give you guys a little bit of more of a forensic look. So I'm Alyssa. I'm Erin. And, and that's, that's the tea. tea.